Hey people, you're listening to Pod Academy. All of us are familiar with city driving, being frustrated, stuck in traffic and circling endlessly to try and find a car park. Indeed, congestion and public parking are two dominant issues that city planners have to deal with. But there is another option that's gaining popularity, the idea of the walkable city. And today I'm talking about this with Jeff Speck, author of Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. Jeff Speck, thank you very much for talking to me. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, Jeff, there's a there's a quote in your book that I find really quite extraordinary, and and that is that the uh, average American family has to work from the first of January through until the thirteenth uh, of April, so that's almost almost three and a half months just in order to pay for their cars. Yeah, you know uh, that statistic is a is a uh, is a moving target. Uh, if you look at the actual cost of the car, I think it may be a little shorter than that. But if you look at the time you spend in traffic. Um, even Illich has written a bunch of, he was this multinational um, intellectual who wrote a bunch of different things. And I have reference to the works that I used in my book, uh, Walkable City. But this is back in the 70s when we drove half as much and cars were, were cheaper. You know, we spent actually half as much of our income on driving. Uh, as we do now. You know, in the 70s, we spent about one in $10 on transportation, and now we spend about one in $5 on transportation. And what he calculated then was that if you compare, um, you know, the first world with its automotive infrastructure to tribal economies in places that have no technology whatsoever, they move at three miles an hour because they're walking. Um, if you add up the cost of owning a car and the time that you spend earning that money and the time that you spend in traffic, we're also moving at three miles an hour. <laughs> so we're, we're spending one-fifth of our income or more if you're poor. Poor people in America spend 40% of their income on transportation. That is moving us no faster than when we were tribal. Um, in terms of moving faster, and uh, you, you, in the book you, you talk a lot about um, congestion and that creating new roads really only increases congestion. Uh, yes, uh, I would say the accurate way to put it would be that it doesn't increase congestion, it increases trips so that congestion remains a constant or close to it. And the, fundament, the fundamental law of traffic congestion, which is what the paper was called that presented this to the London School or the Paris School of Economics, and this is something that has not been discredited in any way, and it's certainly been borne out by experience in city after city, is that as you add more more road capacity, people's behavior um, varies in such a way that within a few years, I believe it's typically within about four years, that capacity, that new capacity is entirely absorbed by new trips. 100% of it is absorbed by new trips. If, uh, if, if creating new roads doesn't alleviate traffic congestion, then uh, what does? The reason that, the, the principal reason why um, uh, induced demand, as it's called, happens is because we don't pay the full cost of, of automotive travel. So, like any free good, you know, economists joke about parking, 
you know, of course there's never enough parking. If pizza were free, would there be enough pizza, right? And whenever anything's price is depressed artificially, uh, as driving is, then the smart thing to do as an economic actor is to do it as much as possible. So until that, you know, that's why I like to say the best way that I can describe induced demand is that um, in congested systems, the principal constraint to driving is congestion. So you, you remove that constraint, of course, and people change their behavior. Now, if there was a different constraint, um, for example, if we were to price driving at the cost um, that it truly costs society, or if we were to, to price congested, ro congested roadways in the same way we price over-demanded uh, airplane flights <laughs> relative to the amount that people valued them, then you would see uh, people's behavior beginning to uh, be rational again. So I am uh, a fan of congestion pricing. It's had a lot more success in theory uh, than it has in practice, only because it's been implemented very little. But those places where it has been implemented, like in downtown London, um, have seen tremendously positive outcomes, um, great reductions in, in congestion, great investments in transit, uh, great investments in other forms of getting around that result from the, you know, the income from this tax that makes everyone in the city who fought, you know, there was a huge anti-congestion tax lobby in London before it was done. And uh, subsequent to it happening, um, the vast majority of the citizens agreed that it, w it, it was the right thing to do. <laughs> you also comment in the book that uh, free parking actually reduces the revenue of local businesses. Yeah, um, the, the, um, and that's a little counterintuitive, isn't it? it it's super counterintuitive. And, and most places where I work, the merchants will fight tooth and nail against the consultant, out-of-town expert, telling them, you need to charge more for your parking. And these merchants forget that the parking meter was invented by businesses to serve businesses because they wanted to have more of a churn, you know, more turnover at the curbs. In fact, what happens in a lot of places is the, the employees and even the owners are parking right in front of their stores um, so that patrons can't go there or it's inconvenient for patrons to come. Or you get this general overcrowding that creates the perception that there's uh, not enough parking when in fact there's almost always uh, more than adequate parking at a slight distance away but when you look at a, at a curve and the entire block is full, you don't want to shop there because you, you feel like you're not uh, able to, uh, to stow your car. And so the, the, um, the great trick, and by the way, everything I've learned from parking, I've learned from a guy named Donald Shoup, who wrote a book called The High Cost of Free Parking, um, that describes all this. But if, if, you price, if you price parking properly, which he describes at uh, a price that gets you one empty space per block face, then you find that revenues go up quite a bit. And in city after city, he documents this in his book, where the merchants have fought a higher price of parking um, in Pasadena, California, in Aspen, Colorado, where the merchants have lost the next day after they lost and the prices were put into, into um, effect, they said, we were wrong. Thank you for defeating us <laughs> because business, business 
popped up immediately. Jeff, in your book, you talk a lot about the young creative professionals who are, who are driving this movement from the suburbs to the city and that these young guys, girls want to live in, in walkable, bikeable inner cities. Can you talk a little bit about that? And let me also, can you mention what you think, uh, because if everyone is moving towards the cities, what do you think is happening to the suburbs? We've learned now that we have a much smaller carbon footprint when we live in a city than when we live in a suburb and also that we are much healthier particularly as relates to obesity and car crashes when you live in a walkable community as opposed to living in a in a driving um, community but we have to acknowledge that if we were a more urban country and truly an urban walkable country uh, we'd be a much healthier country a wealthier country and a um, more sustainable planet um, but the fact is that as those of means are uh, increasingly choosing the city as a place to live, and particularly the millennials who have the flexibility and the culture to want, you know, the ethos to want urban living, because as Chris Leinberger says, they grew up on Friends, Seinfeld, Sex in the City, um, and have, you know, are looking to um, share that lifestyle. And then the empty nesters, who no longer need a big house or a big yard, um, don't want to clean the house or, <laughs> or tend the yard, and don't care about schools, the city is also a great choice for them because they realize that eventually they won't be able to drive and they want to still be viable and self-reliant when they lose the car keys. So these folks are buying up uh, the city. And I should say the typical American city isn't a... New York or a Washington, um, where they've bought up a lot of it already, but uh, you know a Cedar Rapids or a Grand Rapids or or a bigger city like a Memphis or a Jacksonville uh, or Las Vegas, where very few people still live downtown. But the trends are clear that the downtowns are becoming the new place of choice for those who have a choice. So those who don't have a choice are ending up in the suburbs, where they're even less prepared. Uh, to to survive and thrive um, in this environment that demands automotive ownership for citizenship, essentially. So if you don't have one car per adult, um, you don't function in the suburbs. So we're taking a segment of our population that's already struggling, and we're putting the, the additional demand on them of this, you know, individual hypermobility just to get, just to buy cat food, right? Yeah, yeah, that's not cool. Um, in terms of this migration and this migration to the um, the urban cities, uh, and it's being again driven by these sort of millennials, these younger creatives. What happens when they grow up a little bit and want to have kids? I mean, does that mean that then there will be an, an exodus back to the suburbs? You know, for many years now, the younger folks who move to the city, and as you know, they're moving to the city in much greater numbers now. But for example, in a typical city like Washington, D.C., the typical path was you move to the city in your 20s and then you move out in your 30s and you move back to the suburbs or to some other suburb, principally for the schools. There's perceptions of safety uh, that used to drive that as well. But now it's almost entirely, almost entirely schools that, have, that are driving um, people with kids out of the city. Um, so what you see happening in most American cities, uh, inner city urban core populations are soaring. 
Um, and that's going to continue because of the demographic trends with the millennials and the empty nesters who, who, who far, far outnumber those people who are having children. In fact, 88% of the next 100 million households that are going to be generated in America are going to be childless. And even now we have more households in America with dogs than with children. So demographically, and I'm part of this, this kind of neck of the hourglass, you know, this, this small demographic of parents of young kids. But what you see um, happening is half of my friends are leaving the city and half of us, myself included, are finding ways to make it work for us. But it's far from ideal. For example, in Washington, um, we have a school commute. And we have a school commute because our schools have failed for so long. And now they're getting better, but they're getting better in the form of charter schools, which are, you know, optional and you have to win a lottery to get in. And we hit the lottery and rejoiced and then uh, signed up for a um, about, you know, hour and a half of driving each day to get our kids to school and back from school because we don't have a good structure now of neighborhood-based schools. What you find is that the last thing that comes back to city centers, you know, that used to just have jobs and almost nothing else, which is the typical downtown American city, um, you know, first some hip people move in, then more people move in and real estate developers move in, then a ton of people move in, and then you're getting more restaurants and recreational opportunities and the playgrounds improve. And maybe 15 years after that begins, once the kids have grown up, uh, the schools begin to get better. But it's really hard to turn school systems around. So that that is a challenge. How much uh, pressure. I mean, you comment in your book that uh, three of the largest companies in the world are U.S. oil companies, uh, and they obviously contribute millions in campaign funding, and they they have their own priorities. How how much have you seen your work and um, this kind of growing movement that that you see around you butt up against those interests? Uh, not at all in the local sense, and I do think the great hope for walkability in America is at the local level city by city by city, town by town, village by village. And by the way, this isn't just a city thing. I mean, a, uh, you know, a small village that has a mixed-use center can provide a, a, a wonderful, walkable lifestyle that, frankly, many of us would prefer to, a, you know, to the frisson of, a, of an urban environment. Uh, where, where that comes into play, where the, you know, there's no conspiracy, by the way, but where the, the great, um, there was, <laughs> there was a conspiracy years ago that, destroyed most of our streetcar systems in the U.S. But the, the, what we currently have is, now is uh, a complete ignorance of induced demand uh, at the federal level, at least, you know, except for certain intelligent staffers. Um, and the, the way that the oil money and the other, you know, automotive money plays into this is that there uh, is a tremendous amount of funding at the federal level and at the state level, but mostly at the federal level, going to building new highways still to reduce congestion. So you have, for example, Louisville, which has a downtown that's kind of gutted by a highway that kind of shouldn't be there, that's about to double the size of that highway because they could get the money. And they could get the money because Congress gave them the money. And Congress gave them the money because the, the folks who are voting in Congress uh, are not aware of or choose to ignore 
induced demand. And I do think it's a factor that there's a ton of campaign contributions coming from these interests to our uh, public servants. Great. Jeff, it's been really interesting talking to you. I really, really appreciate the time. Uh, Thank you very much. If you are interested in listening to Jeff give a good summary of his ideas, you should definitely check out his TED.com talk. And, of course, you can always find out more by buying his book. And so you've been listening to Jeff Speck, the author of the book Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time, and, of course, to me, Craig Barfoot. Thanks for listening. Ciao.